was within reach and hoping that when we got our tax refund that we were going to be able to give the $500. A lot of things happened and unexpected expenses came along and we really thought not even, we're not even going to be able to do $500. And then that just last week, uh, the, a bonus check came in the mail that was three times more than normal, out of the blue, nothing that they were expecting. They even called the employer because they thought it was a mistake. The employer couldn't explain it, but they said, the money's yours, you can keep it, right? So God, I know, it's good, isn't it? Why aren't you clapping right now? I know because you're jealous. That hasn't happened for you yet. All right. God truly works in mysterious ways. He knows our heart and he knows how much we love him and love our church and anything that helps to make his kingdom grow. So, so happy and honored to be able to give today. This was last Sunday, our faith promise, but not the original amount. We were able to double it and give the amount we dreamed of. So last week they wrote a check for $1,000 to the faith promise fund. It says, we are more than thankful to God for always being so good to us in all aspects of our lives. The least we can do is keep our promise and always remember his faithfulness to us. Isn't that good? I know, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. So if you've not done, if you've not made a faith promise, you need to because it's for the whole year. Your faith promise might not come in until December, right? Sometimes God makes us wait for, for him coming and, and being on time. And so we just hope if you've not been a part of that, that you need to go out and ask somebody. I don't know if the cards are still out there, but we can get those to you. But if you call this your church home, we want to invite you to be a part of it. All right, so one more quick thing about money before we move on into, into the message. Is Keegan here? Where's Keegan? He's one of our, our our, our youth. I don't know if he's in here or not. All right. You, if he ever, what about Josh Bear? Is Josh Bear in here? Josh, right? Could you stand up, Josh? We want you to stand up because if Josh or Keegan ever invite you to a card game, you do not want to go. Because Josh won the Texas Hold'em last night. Come on. And Keegan, who's one of our teenagers, came in second. I know. It's amazing. Now it's a fun thing and uh, that we do to raise money for camp every year. And so, all right. You ready? Let's dig in. Hey, also we just want to say too, uh, Elam, Elam uh, Bible Institute, which is the Bible Institute for the fellowship that we are a part of. Uh, that, uh, so I, I said uh, I didn't have any more announcements, I lied, so I'm just confessing that to you right now. So, so we, we decided this year, we came home from the conference and, and they're, they're trying to raise money for, they're getting ready to get their accreditation. They have to have a fund that's set up in order to be accredited. And I really felt like God spoke to my heart that we were supposed to give to that. And so I was praying about how we were supposed to. And I really felt like God spoke to me that for, as a church that we were supposed to write a check to Elam Bible Institute as a first fruits offering of all the faith promise monies that came in, even before the money came in, right? We're just going to give. So we took 10%. We're, we're up over, we're just uh, over $30,000 in faith promises so far. And so we stroked a check for $3,000 to Elam Bible Institute. I know you can clap for that as a church. And we're going to do that every year. Every year when the, when the initial faith promises come in, we're going to take, before the money comes in, we're going to take 10% of that and we're going to give that money away as a first fruits offering. And so we're just excited for that. So it was a great moment for us. All right, so we're talking about unity tonight together as a church family. And uh, not because there's a problem with unity. How many of you, you got to talk about it so it never gets to be a problem. And so unity is a distinctive here. We're celebrating it through our conversation tonight. Unity is not perfect agreement. That's a lie. How many of you are married? All right. You know, oh yeah, see, they're all laughing already, right? Some of you who are married didn't even raise your hand, so I already know that you've had a rough day. You've had a rough day, all right. All right. So, so, so now, how many of you who are married are always in perfect agreement about everything? So, if your hand is up, Amy Kearney is a liar. I'm calling her out right here in front of the whole church. She's only doing that because Jason's not in here. So if Jason was there, oh, there he is in the back, right. He's throwing something at her even as we speak, 
You, you, don't, re- you don't demand, because you, you know what's impossible. If you wanted unity in your marriage and your definition of unity was perfect agreement, you'd be miserable for your whole life. You understand that you've got to decide the things that you're going to fight for and then the things that you're going to decide, you know, we might differ in those things, but we're going to respect each other in our differences. Unity is when different-minded, passion, gifted, colored, resourced language, you keep going with that list. People find absolute commonalities that transcend their relative dissimilarities. It's true for the church. that We've got to decide for ourselves what are the things that are going to be absolutes? What what are the things that are non-negotiable for us? What what are the things that we say, hey, these things that, 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 that there is something to be said for being right and for being wrong. I'm just saying to you that's got to be a small list. And then you can think about an archery target. It just circles roll out from there with varying degrees of things that are important to you. But you've got to have some circles where you're willing to say, I know this is what I believe. And, and, and I know you might not believe it. And I hear what you believe. But I can see why you believe what you believe. And you just both are okay with each other in that moment. That's part of how you find unity as a church family. I, I'm, gonna get, I'm not going to go through all of my circles. But I'll give you my, my core circle. I have a center circle for me. And there's only three things in that circle right if, if like if someone were to ask me you know what what, what just to, to be christian right if i'm making a decision about religions is it a false religion or is it christianity there's just three in there for me it's the divinity of christ it's the depravity of man it's the efficacy of the cross I, you have to believe that Jesus is divine. You, if you don't believe in the divinity of Christ, there's, that it can't be Christian. You, you have to believe in the depravity of man, that, that you were born into this world a sinner, and then you're good enough will never be good enough. That's what this table is about. And you have to believe in the efficacy of the cross, that the cross, the death that Jesus died, is able to redeem even the most wicked of sinners. His grace is able to reach you no matter how far you might feel from God. Right? And then I've got circles that move out from there. I'm just telling you that for us as a church family, we're careful to not put too many things in the absolutes because what you want to be able to do is walk forward in unity as a church family and those things that you find in common, that you want those things to transcend and rise above the things where you are dissimilar relative to other people. You've got to be willing to admit that everything that you believe, some of those things are born out of what you're taught, your life experience, your theological persuasions, and that other thinking, impassioned people, they've got things that they're just as impassioned about that are different from you, and we should be able to say to each other, come on, let's run after Christ still together. A beautiful blend of beliefs. Here's three right here. I'm just going to tell you as a church that we say you've got to make sure that you're really thinking through it, whether it should be something that's relative or something that's an absolute. I'm not going to go there, but for my note takers, you've got 1 Corinthians 12. is a beautiful teaching on the diversity of the body of Christ. The application is based on giftings and callings, but the transcendent principle is that you don't have to be the same in order to be unified. Romans 14 and 15, is if you've not read that recently, you should dig around in that. It talks about points of doctrines matters of conscience and foregoing liberties. The Apostle Paul himself at the birth of the early church was saying we've got to get this thing right that we're supposed to stand in unity together and and there's points of doctrines. In the text he talks about holy days and some people view one day as more holy than the other and then that might not be as big of a conversation for people today but I'll tell you 2,000 years ago it was stirring up churches. People were leaving Christianity because of this idea of violating what the, the Jewish law said was a Sabbath. It was a hot button issue 2,000 years ago and Paul said hey make sure that you're not making every point of doctrine an absolute it's a mistake don't do it he talks about matters of conscience there might be things that 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 you feel that you should not do because it violates your personal sense of conscience 
but you can't project that on everybody. If you, you might be somebody who maybe you're in a place of being a recovering alcoholic and it's, it's not safe for alcohol to ever be part of your story ever again, right? That's a matter of conscience for you. But you might, somebody else might be here tonight and they enjoy a glass of wine or a cold beer on the beach in the summertime. The Bible doesn't say anything about alcohol consumption as a sin. It talks about drunkenness. It talks about riotous living. It talks about carousing, right? All those things are, are wrong things in excess, addictive behaviors. But you've got to make sure that you don't take your matters of conscience and try to make them other people's matters of conscience. Forgoing liberties. If you're a vegetarian, I cannot be your friend. <laughs> right? But if you're a vegan and you invite me over to your house, right, I'm an omnivore. But I'll tell you what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to stop off at the grocery store and buy some steaks to cook for myself when I get to your house. You might, for some reason, be a vegan beyond just the health reasons. You might have some strong convictions about that. You know what? I'm at liberty to eat just about anything that I want to. That list gets smaller now that I'm 47, but you're tracking with me, right? But I'm going to intentionally forego things that I'm at liberty to do for the sake of other people and the peace of the moment. You've got to be willing to lay down things, not to let other people define you. I'm talking about in certain moments of time, in certain seasons of life. You've got to be willing to forgo certain liberties. It might not violate your conscience, but I'm going to forgo the liberty for the sake of others, Romans 14 and 15. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is preaching to the world, church, be unified. And he's trying to help us to understand some of the greatest impediments to the unification that the church is called to have. So I want to talk a little bit about the Jerusalem Council because I find it deeply instructive that the very first decision, that the very first leaders of the very first church ever gave dealt with this very thing. And I'm telling you, that's not an accident. I know that's the picture of the very first Jerusalem Council. They look a lot like our student ministries. It's so amazing, isn't it? All right. All right, if you've got your Bible, you can turn to Acts 15 just so you know that I'm not making all this stuff up tonight. Acts 15, come on. Let's dig around into God's Word. Acts 15. I'm going to read 1 through 6, then 22 through 29. When Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, I love the fact that they started their church in Antioch. Antioch was one of three major cities in ancient times. There was Rome, there was Alexandria, there was Antioch. Antioch was the place that you did not want to go. In fact, some Roman commanders forbade their troops to go there because it was such a riotous, raucous place. Can you imagine a Roman soldier, right, as brutal as they were, their commander even saying to them, that place is too dangerous for you. I love that's where Paul said, that's where I want to go and plant a church. He began to teach the believers, and unless you are circumcised, as, as uh, so other men from Judea came up to find Paul, right? Because he was teaching what we're teaching tonight, and these other men didn't like it. And so they began to teach believers in their church, unless you are circumcised, as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them and argued vehemently. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local elders, to talk to the apostles and the elders about this question. The church sent the delegates to Jerusalem, and they stopped along the way in Phoenicia and Samaria to visit the believers. They told them much to everyone's joy that the Gentiles too, that's every non-Jewish person in biblical days, that the Gentiles too were being converted. 
When they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and the elders. When you read this word apostle, it means different things in our time, but in, in, in this time when this was written, it meant that the apostles were only the people who had received their commission directly from Christ. That's what apostle means in the Greek. It means to be sent out. They reported everything God had done through them. It's, it's it put in text like this because when the letter was written to the people, uh, when, it was, when it was personally distributed, they wanted them to know that these people, they carried weight. Because they walked with Christ. But then some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees, right? That that was a Jewish order, but many of them now had converted to Christianity. They stood up and insisted that Gentiles must be circumcised and required to follow the laws of Moses. So the apostles and the elders met together. Group-based decision-making. Come on, that's how we do it here at the City Life Church. So the apostles and the elders met together to resolve the issue. Now let's jump over to verse 22. Then the apostles and the elders, together with the whole church in Jerusalem, chose delegates, and they sent them to Antioch of Syria with Paul and Barnabas to report on the decision. It's going to come in just a minute. The chosen were two church leaders, Judas also called Barsabbas and Silas, and this is the letter they took with them. This letter is from the apostles and the elders, your brothers in Jerusalem. It is written to the Gentile believers of Antioch, Syria and Cilicia, and greetings. Greetings, he says. We understand that some men from here have troubled you and upset you with their teaching, we did not send them. So we decided, having come to complete agreement, to send you official representatives, along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are sending Judas and Silas to confirm what we have decided concerning your question. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit for us, listen to this, to lay no greater burden on you than our few requirements. Their circle in the center of absolutes was tiny. Now, you know just as well as I do that there's a lot in this book that these men have taught us. The apostles, the elders, the apostle Paul himself, right? He, he was the very first theologian, but yet they're all comfortable. It's powerful, isn't it? With just saying, let's just write down a few things that we're going to say, we're al- these things we will allow to be dividing, but everything else, let's find unity together. You must abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood or strangled meat. That was a pagan practice. It means if it was strangled meat, it means that the blood wasn't drained from it. And so that was a pagan ritual, and we're going to stay away from that. It's interesting to me, too, that the only one on here that makes it is sexual immorality. And this is another sermon for another time, but everything that is sexual that's not within the context of marriage and not between a man and a woman falls into the category of sexual immorality. If, If you do this, you will do well farewell. You might be here tonight and you're saying, that list is way too short. They should have put more stuff in there, but it's not under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's instructive, isn't it? Now we've got more things that we believe as a church. You've got more things that you believe as a church, but you've got to make sure that you don't get the wrong things into the circle that you are willing to divide over. Now you might say, well, Fred, That's because the Bible has already been written, and so there's no need to create circles like that anymore because, you know, back then the New Testament wasn't the New Testament yet. They were just letters, and that's a decent response. But So what I would read to you is 1 Corinthians 11, 4 through 6 to tell you that every church, almost every church still today, practices this idea of things being time-bound. Listen to this in 1 Corinthians 11, 4 through 6. A man dishonors his head if he covers his head while praying or prophesying. Love how Jews, right? Preaching with his hat on right there. 
Listen to what it says. And a woman dishonors her head if she prays or prophesies without a covering on her head. It's the same as shaving her head. Yes, if she refuses to wear a head covering, she should cut off all her hair. What church is doing that? We have a hair shaving ministry for our ladies in the church who don't like to wear the doilies that we're offering out, right? But since it's shameful for a woman to have her head shaved, right, in his day, not necessarily today, she should wear a head covering. I'm just, right, every church practices to some degree what we're talking about. And every church is going to have varying degrees of where those concentric circles fall. What we're saying tonight is you've got to be comfortable that those concentric circles exist. We don't necessarily have to agree with everything that falls in certain places, but you've got to be willing to buy into the principle that the most center circles should be small and the bigger circles should be the ones that are towards the outside. And let's find commonality on things that we say we must be absolutes, but things that we are dissimilar in, let's put as many of those things as we can into the world of relativism. It's no accident that the very first recorded decision of the true first church, right? I love all the signs that say the first church, right? Well, they, they could have had that sign and it would have been for real because they were the first church, right? The first church was dealing with absolutism versus relativism. It is the one of the most instructive parts in the teaching of the book of Acts is this idea that there was a unity that the church is supposed to have and the Bible is instructive for how we protect it. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. This is in italics because this is a paraphrase. Now, you might read it and say, well, this isn't anything like what you read there. And the reason I'm giving you this paraphrase is because we understand the Bible in light of itself. It's a principle of hermeneutics. It's the science of biblical interpretation. You have to understand the Bible in the context of the whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. So when I read 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, I'm understanding that text through the whole Bible, but I'm understanding it especially through Acts 15. Because the Apostle Paul was a central player in both. Everything that's absolute compel all people to uphold. But matters that are relative, meaning that if it's not something that all people for all time and all generations should be compelled to uphold, do not allow those things to break the sense of unity and togetherness that you share. Love this picture of Pastor Rob Shepherd. Next Level Church, love Rob, love their church. We're very different from each other as churches, but I can tell you, I, I would gladly recommend people that are maybe looking, if they're looking for a church that's a little bit different from ours, that maybe it's not part of a, a charismatic movement, or maybe a church that's a little bit more reformed in their theology. I, Rob Shepard, they're an amazing church. You with me? I mean, as a church, we're looking around our community, and we're saying, hey, we don't necessarily follow each other's suit. The National Day of Prayer was a beautiful picture, right? Can we just say that prayer is a circle that we can all come to and stand together in? Amazing. There was over 3,000 people there. All these churches coming together. Hey, we can worship together and we can pray together to the name of Jesus Christ. Love the picture of diversity of the National Day of Prayer is. And we're going to do a better job of, of uh, promoting that next year. It's going to be good. All right, let's talk a little bit about unity. Love this picture of the Bimbos. Remember the Chuck and Aaron Bimbo, right? American flag in the background. He's in the Air Force. Powerful picture here. If we as a, oh, I double click my button. If we as a church elevate matters of relativism to a place of absolutism, we end up in the world of legalism. I shared this with you last weekend. And if we as a church demote matters of absolutism to a place of relativism, we end up in a world of permissiveness. If we rightly discern between the two, we experience awe inspiring. We're not just supposed to be unified, we're supposed to walk in a unity that inspires the whole world. 
Can I just say that to you? We're not just supposed to be unified by, by way of a bare minimum. The unity that we walk in is supposed to be a unity that causes the rest of the world to look at us in the midst of our diversity and say, how in the heck do they do that? That's the kind of unity that we're called to as a church family. Acts 2.1, I gave you this verses last week, and Acts 2.44 both use the word together. And that word together, it's a context word. Sometimes it's geographical togetherness, but sometimes it's a togetherness of heart. And if you've got a King James Bible, 2.1 renders that of one accord. I think the better rendering of Acts 2.1 is that it's speaking to the geographical togetherness, that they were all in the same place. They were all gathered together because when you get to 2.44, you see the theme of being of one heart and of one mind together. And I think what the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us through Luke's writing here is that you've got to have both. You've got to gather together. You've got to be together. You've got to share space and time to build relationships and to impact the world that's around you. But when you come together, you've got to allow your hearts to stand together even though you are different from one another. And then Acts 2.43, what was says of the church then can be said of the church today, that the world stood in awe. We want to be a church that still awes the world today. The collective unity of city life is everyone's individual responsibility. The collective unity of city life is everyone's individual responsibility. So if you're here tonight and you're saying, well, well Fred, who gets to decide what goes in what circles, right? Because that's a, that's a fair question. And so what we want to say to you is that there's no one person in the church, including myself as the lead pastor, I don't just get to say this is what falls in different circles and you can take it or leave it. That's not how they made decisions in Acts 15. That's certainly not how we make them today. We work together as a leadership team. Things that we're teaching, things that we're talking about, we work together as a team. We meet together. All the different layers of leadership in our church, this idea of concentric circles defines so much a part of who we are. We listen to each other. We talk to each other. So we're holding each other accountable and then beyond that right in our region I've got pastors that I'm friends with we've got churches that we're in relationship with I think about Chris Halloran over at Grace Church you already talked about Rob Shepard I think about Brian Forrester at All Nations I I, I think about Freddie Villarreal right at Freedom Life that that all of these men I listen to them we're, we're all different we're different in our theological persuasion but we learn from each other we hold each other accountable I'm telling you, if those men called me up and said, Fred, we heard something that you're teaching, and we're just meeting with you today because you need to know that, hey, I, think, I don't think that's right. And that would give me great pause. Our hearts should be inclined to listen to the people that we respect, that God has put them into our lives to bring accountability. And then we have an affiliation. Uh, there's a lot of independent, non-denominational churches out there that have a great heart. My question for you, if you're checking them out, is what are they connected to? Right? You've got to be connected to something that's bigger than yourself you got to be connected to something that's bigger than yourself. That's why for when we came here in 07, we began the long journey of who are we going to affiliate with. And it was a long process for us, but we were excited for the last couple of years that we are part of Elam Fellowship. That's our connection. We are an independent, non-denominational church, but there are people that we are affiliating with, and we're giving them the right to speak into our lives. Oh, let's talk a little bit about, isn't that a great slide? Come on, right? If you're a contentious person and you need help, see somebody in a blue shirt tonight. No, all right. Let's talk a little bit about contentious people because this is a huge part of the conversation of the Bible. And one of the reasons why the conversation about contentious people is a big part of the Bible is because we're called to unity. You with me? And so the Bible is not going to challenge us to unity and then not give us some good practical teaching of what we're supposed to do when we find ourselves dealing with people that are contentious. Let me, let me just give you a little snapshot. 
Because these are the least contentious people that you could ever find in the whole world. Can we just say that? Zach and Jessica Kuhn and their precious little daughter, part of the Williamsburg campus, Coast Guard, come on. Contentious people, they accuse the sacred work of being peacemakers as being people pleasers. You're going to hear that coming a lot from people who are contentious. Their, their, their accusation is that the church is trying to be a people pleaser. No, no, the, the Sermon on the Mount, if you've not read that, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Beatitudes open, blessed are the peacemakers. Peacemaking takes great character. Peacemaking takes great discipline. Peacemaking takes great patience. Peacemaking takes the willingness to listen to other people that differ from us. Peacemaking takes the courage to understand that there are things that are absolutes and then there are things that are not. Contentious people, anybody know who this is right here? Come on, Chris House, right? Come on. Rocking the tricycle. Yeah, I know, I know. See, this is the great thing about hashtag pick me is that you don't have to submit your own picture. You can submit pictures on behalf of other people. I know, I know, yeah. It makes you nervous, doesn't it? It should. Contentious people, they demand agreement too often, always expecting everyone to accept their position. You ever found that, people that are contentious? They're, they're wide open to the idea that people are wrong, it's just not ever them, right? They're wide open to the idea about all these circles, but they get to make the rules for what goes in what circle. It's a, it's a hallmark, it's a hallmark of contentious people. They refuse to acknowledge the partnership between absolutism and relativism. They just won't do it. Lots of different reasons, but sometimes this idea of relativism makes people nervous. And I can appreciate that. I can appreciate that. But it shouldn't make you nervous, but it, it should inspire you that we have a sacred duty and a sacred responsibility for the generation that we're in under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, through the accountable relationships that we have, through the relationships that we have with theologians that have given their whole life to the study of doctrine and the principles of hermeneutics to ask the question, what does this book mean for us today? It's why we're not asking our women to wear a head covering. It's why we're not saying if you don't that you have to shave your head, right? Because God never intended for us not to prayerfully read what's in this book. We believe in the authoritative word of God. We believe that this book in its original form was perfect in every way. And then we walk with God for him to help us understand how we're supposed to live it out in our lives. They isolate themselves from those who challenge them and have few, if any, people to whom they are willing to defer. People that have a pattern of being contentious, you're going to watch throughout the story of their life, it's a story of fractured relationships. And typically those relationships fracture at the point the conversation comes to a place where people that love them are trying to help them see where they're wrong, and so then they always step away. You know anybody like that? It's It's sad. It's sad. Not, not just because of the, of, of, the, of, the, of the consequence that could come to the local church, but it's a lonely way to live. It's a lonely, lonely journey. There have got to be people in our lives that we're willing to defer to. There have, there have to be people, right? There have to be people. And it should not be just two, one or two people, right? I'm telling you, I've got a list, right? The men of the governance team came to me. Tim Rogers and Jason Kearney and Nate Nowotny and Steve Ruggiero, especially because he has two master's degrees, right? And, and Pastor Jamie, I'll tell you, if those men came to me and said, Fred, you're wrong here, can I just, my first reaction is going to be, you know what, I'm, I'm wrong because I love you guys and I know you have my best interest heart and I trust you. You with me? There's got to be people in our lives. Mike Cavanaugh, Joe Jansen, 
Chris Ball up at Elam Fellowship, if they were to pull me aside and say, Fred, you're, you're out of line here, I'd be saying, you know what? I probably am. Because God's put you in my life, right? If Vanessa, my wife, I know, it gets dangerous, doesn't it? Right? People that God has put into our lives. You should have a, I'm, talk, I'm not talking about a bit, I'm not talking about the whole world. You should have a decent sized list. I'm just telling you. You should have a decent sized list of people that you love and respect enough to challenge you in ways that you don't want to be challenged, who you are willing to listen to. You're willing to, I'm not talking about blindness following people. We're not talking about that, right? You get what I'm saying. People that if they were to pull you aside, that it would be weighty to you and that you're willing to defer until you can work it out. Love that picture of Stan. Come on. Bring it in 2011, baby. That was taken at Panera just yesterday. He still wears those. Because he's fun. Listen, they need other people to be wrong in order to feel more right themselves. Contentious people, the most insecure people on the planet. Most insecure people. They, they need other people to feel wrong to make them feel right. I'm telling you, if any of these things speak to who you are, then, then, then we would love to walk with you on a journey of healing so that that doesn't have to define your heart anymore. Titus 3, 9 through 11. Titus 3, 9 through 11. Don't get involved in foolish discussions about spiritual pedigrees or in quarrels and fights about obedience to Jewish laws. These things are useless and a waste of time. If people are causing divisions among you, give a first and a second warning. But after that, listen to what it says, have nothing to do with them. For people like that have turned away from the truth and their own sins condemn them. I love this text because every time I read it, it makes me ask the question, did, did the Apostle Paul not read the letter that Matthew wrote? I mean, what's up with that, right? Because if we believe that the Holy Spirit is the one true author of everything and the people that actually put the, the, the ink to the scroll, right, were just his divine instrument, then, then what do I do with Matthew 18? Because I'm just, when I read Matthew 18, it's a very different picture from what Paul is teaching Titus about this young protege, right? Matthew 18, you're, you know it, you've heard it many times, right? If someone, is a brother who's, who's sinning, you go to them, right, privately, pr protecting their dignity, reaching out to them, pleading to them. And then if you guys can't come to, or ladies can't figure it out, right, then you bring somebody with you, not because you're trying to gang up on them and win the fight, right? That's a terrible teaching. Don't believe that's terrible. It's horrible, right? Because you love this person. So you go get some other people and then, then you try to meet and work it out. But part of that too is you bring other people because you know that you've got your own biases and we've got our own blind spots. So we put more people in the room to try to work it out. And if that can't work out, then you get more people, right? And if at the end, it's really clear that this person is walking in a place of sin. I mean, Jesus in his own teaching said sometimes you have to bring that stuff before the church. Well, you, either you've got to believe that the Apostle Paul made a mistake when he wrote to Titus, or you've got to embrace the reality, which is what I embrace, that once the sin that's general in Matthew 18 becomes the sin of division and divisiveness, it's a whole new set of rules. I think what the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us is that this idea of the unity of the church is so, is so sacred 
when a person steps across that line and becomes divisive, that the contentiousness of who they are so characterizes him that it begins to put at risk the sacred work of the unity of the church, it's just a lot less time is supposed to be given. It's interesting, too, that it doesn't say talk with them. It says warn them. Once, warn them a second time, and then you have to say, not because you don't love them, but to say you can't be here until we get this thing worked out. It's sobering words from a sobering God. We believe in the grace of God, but we also believe that in this walk of grace that makes up the difference when we fall short, that grace is not intended to give us permission to live less, but to inspire us to go deeper as we prayed over the communion moment. And if part of our journey is that we are just a a contentious person, there is something inside of us that should cry out to God and say, God, I don't want to be that way anymore. Proverbs 13, 1 and 26, 21, if you're a note taker, I'm just throwing those into you. Lots of things in Proverbs that talks about this idea of being contentious. Scripture calls pastors to be caring, loving, gracious, kind, patient, and merciful. Until unity is being harmed, then it would be better for that person to wander into the wilderness and find a bear to poke with a stick. Right? I'm just not... You, if you're looking for a church home, we might not be the church for you, right? And, and if we're not, then we want to help you find that church. But I can guarantee you this, any church that we would ever recommend to you is going to have a pastor who's caring and loving and gracious and kind and patient and merciful, but also a pastor who believes in the sacredness of unity and is willing to walk in the courageousness of leadership that is sometime required to deal with people that could cause that church to suffer and be harmed. There's a reason in Psalm 23 that the good shepherd has both a staff and a rod. We are a beautiful blend of beliefs. As we said last week, if you weren't here, you can listen to the podcast. The great enemy of love is not hate, as some would believe. As you read 1 Corinthians 13, that's 13, love 13, that's 1 Corinthians 13, the 13th verse. As you read through the 13th, the beginning of the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, you will find that what Paul's instruction to us is that... The enemy of love is arrogance. It's the person who believes that they just know it all. Listen to what God says in Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. There's a poeticness to to some of Scripture, and it's ancient poetry. And like poetry today, it it follows some some practices, some cultural distinctives. And so when you come to a list, especially in Proverbs, where a list is given, it might be a list of ten things, but it starts out by saying there's nine things, and then it mentions, it gives a general reference to the tenth thing. It sets it apart because it's saying that it's trying to give an emphasis. Does that make sense? There are six things the Lord hates. No, seven things he detests, right? It's not because he forgot and said, no, I forgot there were seven. No, he's right, 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 there's six. But then when I get to the seventh one, when I get to the, this one, he detests above all else. Now, that should create some curiosity in you. It creates some curiosity in me because when you begin to read these first six, you should say to yourself, good God, what's number seven going to be, right? Listen to what he says. Haughty eyes, that's a prideful look. A lying tongue. Hands that kill the innocent. In the King James, it's hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that plots evil. Feet that race to do wrong. Number six, a false witness who pours out lies. Can can we just be in agreement? Those are six 
horrid things. But God says, let me give you the seventh one. And as bad as all these six are, this one is worse to me than all of those. And listen to what he says. A person who sows discord in a family. I'm telling you, when we read this book, it begins to change our value system. All of us, no matter the, what life we walk out of, when we come into a place of devotion to Christ, we bring a value system with us. And it might be that you've been walking with Christ for a long time, but you've not read this book maybe as much as you should. And even tonight, God is retooling your value system. Something inside of us has got to be willing to say in response to the living word of God, I want this value system and the prioritization of the values that this book gives to define who I am and how I live. This is going to be a big series with us. You can stand as we go into this place of worship. This is going to be a big series for us as a church family because we're going to talk about things that we believe that God has given to us that we are supposed to proclaim in this region. Every church has a message. Every church has a message. And at the end of the day, if it's a Christian church, our message is ultimately Jesus. But then God gives different churches different focuses that we're supposed to bring. And that's what I think denominationalism, I'm just telling you, is a beautiful thing because it creates a wonderful portrait of so many of the different aspects of the heart of God. And we fit into the mosaic of the churches of this region. And can I just tell you, one of the things that he's called us to preach, one of the things that he's called us to demonstrate, one of the things that he's called us as a church family to practice is this idea that we're going to believe today that we can walk in a place of unity that still awes the world. Come on, let's worship together. Cause I know you came The world your only suffers To know your name To live within the Savior's love And he took my place No 